This is the first of four lectures I'm going to give and which I'm very privileged to be giving at Gresham College uh, entitled The Politics of the Courtroom. In later lectures, I'm going to consider the politics of the judiciary, the politics of judicial appointment, and the politics of the jury system. But today, I'm starting my lectures with the political lawyer. And accompanying my lecture will be images of some of the, in some cases, very great lawyers that I'm going to talk about, and some of the things that they have said and have been said about them. Now, if you are a lawyer, acting for the wrong client can be very dangerous. And indeed, it can be deadly. In early January 1649, John Cook was appointed the Solicitor General and instructed to draft the indictment for King Charles, Charles I, a task, it is said, he accomplished over a particularly stressful and cold weekend in early January. When the Attorney General, a man called William Steele, who was meant to lead the case, meant to lead John Cook, fell conveniently ill just before the trial was due to start, I should say an eventuality that every junior barrister lives in perpetual fear of, Cook stepped into the breach and conducted the prosecution himself, having to withstand the annoyance of the king, prodding him with his silver cane and imperiously interrupting his opening address. Well, we all know what the fate of the king was, uh, but Cook's is not quite so well known. After the restoration in 1660, Cook was tried for treason at the Old Bailey and was executed at Tyburn in London. Passing sentence, the judge, a particularly appalling man called Orlando Bridgman, said, and I quote, the profession of a lawyer will not excuse treason. And my first, my first slide, there we are, there is John Cook executed at Charing Cross, in fact, not Tyburn, according to this, at Charing Cross in 1660. On the scaffold, Cook is reported to have told the large crowd that he was not, and I quote, convinced of anything I have done amiss. These words might be counted somewhat brave for a man about to be hung, have his genitals cut off, his entrails removed from him, with hot tongs, all the while still alive, I should say, and finally have his body quartered. As for William Steele, the Attorney General, he died peacefully in his bed in 1680. Sometimes it might be said it pays to pull a sickie. Now, move forward closer to the present, and we still find lawyers uh, suffering for choosing the wrong client. Fernand Labarie, was Alfred Dreyfus's advocate at his court-martial in 1899. And he was, during the trial, the subject of an assassination attempt uh, by an anti-Dreyfusard. And there's a marvellous picture in the Le Petit Journal of that year of Labarie being shot by the anonymous assassin. Move forward a little further, we have the Israeli... Uh, lawyer, a man called Yoram Sheftel, who defended the, the Treblinka extermination camp guard John Demaniuk at his trial in Israel for mass murder 
in uh, 1988. And he suffered, and let's have a look at him. There he is. Nice tartan. He's a, a rather flamboyant figure. He had acid thrown in his face during the proceedings uh, by an enraged Holocaust survivor. Uh, he later recalled that at the time he was probably the most hated man in Israel. And scroll forward directly to the present day. Last year, there was a great deal of coverage of the Harvard criminal law professor, Ronald Sullivan, who was also the faculty dean of one of the university halls at Harvard, which provided accommodation for some 400 undergraduates. Now, Sullivan was also, and remains, a practicing criminal lawyer as well as a legal academic, and he was retained by Harvey Weinstein to act on one aspect of his multiple criminal proceedings, which we all remember. And a furore ensued with some of the students in Sullivan's charge demanding his ejection, alleging that his decision to act for Weinstein was nothing less than, and I quote, trauma-inducing. Notwithstanding support from the law faculty, Professor Sullivan was removed as the faculty dean, being the lawyer to an alleged sexual abuser and rapist, and of course, subsequently, Weinstein was convicted, and being a faculty dean were apparently incompatible activities. And there's, a, there's Sullivan with Weinstein going into court, and there are some of the uh, Harvard protesters protesting his continuing or then continuing role as faculty dean. All these disparate examples demonstrate the court, that court proceedings are often perceived by the world at large to engage far wider issues than purely legal ones, relevant only to the parties to the litigation in question. They also show, I think, that law is not conducted in a vacuum and can have real-life consequences not just for the litigants, but also for the lawyers who act for those litigants. The law can be, and very often is, political, not in a narrow party sense, but in its perhaps original sense of relating to the polis, the governance and organisation of society. And with that introduction, I come to the subject of this lecture, the political lawyer. What does it mean to be a political lawyer? Are Cook and Sullivan, Labory and Sheftel political lawyers? Now, it might be objected that these are not meaningful questions, at least here in England. A lawyer in England is perceived as simply a voice. He or she should have no view as to the ethics of their client's behaviour. Their personal opinions are classically intended and meant to be irrelevant. Indeed, it would be professionally wrong to address a court with an opinion or a personal opinion as opposed to a submission. Uh, lawyers should simply present their case to the best of their ability. So, so the wisdom goes. It's no business of a lawyer to further a particular political viewpoint, at least when acting in their professional sphere. But it seems to me that the questions I posed just a minute ago are valid questions, and to try to answer them, I want to propose in this lecture four versions of the political lawyer. I come to my first version, and this is the widest, in one sense, 
is simply a description of the English barrister, and to some extent the English solicitor, simply fulfilling their professional obligations. You may have noted uh, a little earlier, I used the phrase choosing the wrong client. Now, to an English lawyer, that will strike a rather jarring note, that phrase. Because one of the central ethical foundations of the English bar is the so-called cab rank rule. It features in the current bar code of conduct and can be stated to be as follows. If you receive instructions from a professional client, you being the barrister for these purposes, and the instructions are appropriate taking into account the experience, seniority, and or field of practice of yourself, you must, subject to a rule which we don't need to worry about, accept the instructions addressed specifically to you, irrespective of, and then there are four characteristics of the client which must play no part in you, the barrister's decision to take or not take on the particular case or brief. The identity of their client, the nature of the case, whether the client is paying privately or is publicly funded, and finally, any belief or opinion which you may have formed as to the character, reputation, cause, conduct, guilt, or innocence of the client. That's the cab rank rule as it currently stands in the English Bar Code of Conduct. And if we then turn back to the 1770s, Dr. Johnson said, famously as recorded by Boswell, uh, the following, a lawyer has no business with the justice or injustice of the cause which he undertakes unless his client asks his opinion, and then he is bound to give it honestly. If lawyers were undertake no causes till they were sure they were just, a man might be precluded altogether from a trial of his claim, though were it judicially examined, it might be found to be a very just claim. So we have there Dr. Johnson, one of the great, of course, one of the great moralists of his period, saying something pretty similar to what the current code of conduct says 250 years ago or so. And if we go to a, another statement in the 18th century, this time in the 1790s, where Thomas Erskine, the famous barrister who defended, amongst others, Tom Paine, he was, when he defended Tom Paine, the pamphleteer and agitator and, uh, and republican, he was widely criticised for his decision to defend an act for Tom Paine. And his reply we see here, if an advocate refuses to, to defend from what he may think of the charge, I think from means that because of, what he may think of the charge or of the defence, he assumes the character of the judge. Nay, he assumes before the hour of judgment and in proportion to his rank or reputation, puts the heavy influence of perhaps a mistaken opinion into the scale against the accused, in whose favour the benevolent principle of English law makes all presumptions. And the presumptions that Erskine is talking about there, most importantly, is the presumption of innocence and the concern that Erskine was articulating there, that if some famous or great barrister of the time were to decline to act for somebody like Tom Paine, then that might, in the public, in the public mind generally, cause the public to think that, well, if Erskine won't act for Paine, then what kind of man is Paine? Um, the cab rank rule has been subject in recent years to criticism for two main reasons. The first is that in practice it is said to be very easy to evade it and how can one police whether or not uh, uh, one has properly declined or not declined a brief and it's fair to say that in practice it can be very difficult to police that obligation. And secondly that there is so much 
competition at the bar now. There are many, many thousands of barristers plying their trade and hoping for a fair, to use the cab rank uh, uh, met metaphor, that, that really the concern that is articulated by the cab rank rule of a barrister declining or any barrister declining to act for a particular client doesn't really exist anymore and is of no substance. And that may be to some extent right. And there are certainly plenty of lawyers who are uh, always pleased to take on any case, however unpopular, simply in order to earn the proverbial crust. Nonetheless, speaking for myself, I think that the cab rank rule, since it was developed and articulated in the late 18th century, has served to shape the fundamental character of the English bar for the better, for the infinite better, in two ways. First, it has meant that in the public mind, barristers are very rarely identified with their client. When you read in the newspapers that Ms. X is, has been instructed by some notorious alleged murderer or alleged criminal, nobody thinks that Ms. X's moral compass is in, is in any form of doubt. With very few exceptions, and I include there, of course, the very unfortunate John Cook from the 1660s and 1640s, English barristers have largely escaped censure for acting for unpalatable clients. I myself have rarely, rarely heard of anyone at the bar at the moment, in the, current, in the present day, suffering professionally on account of the identity of the client that they represented. I don't think it's likely that um, anyone in England in the present time, uh, or in, and in the position of Professor Sullivan, the Harvard professor, would ever find that their university career was threatened because they acted for the wrong defendant. And indeed, if one looks at the current makeup of Oxbridge College heads, one finds they are dominated by lawyers who have in various ways stuck out their necks for sometimes unpalatable clients and done so quite properly and quite professionally. There is, or at least was until very recently, a common consensus within the public at large, it seems to me, that representing clients fearlessly, however unattractive they might be, was a supreme value in itself and was deserving of praise. Now, the second reason why I think the cab rank rule serves really a very important function uh, in the present day and has done for many decades is that it's created in the mentality of English barristers a profound professional value of not judging their clients or refusing to act for particular types of defendant. There was, a couple of decades ago, a story that a particular chambers in London had taken a collective decision not to act in rape cases, that was rightly called out at the time, and the policy was rightly, in my view, reversed. What the cab rank rule has actually meant is that when some particularly egregious person has found themselves, or allegedly egregious person, has found themselves in the dock, they have usually had the benefit of first-class legal representation. Now, I wouldn't want to be too misty-eyed about this, uh, there are examples over the, over the years of particular defendants finding great difficulty in obtaining proper legal representation at their trials. When Sir Roger Casement was prosecuted for treason in 1916, his solicitor looked around the English bar and couldn't find a single English king's counsel 
to defend him against the, the very grave charge of treason. And eventually, the solicitor had to look to a member of the Irish bar, a very legendary figure called Sergeant Sullivan, to take on the job. And let's have another image. And there we are, marvellous uh, and famous painting by John Lavery of uh, the trial of Roger Casement. And there is Sergeant Sullivan making submissions to five judges in Court 4 of the Royal Courts of Justice. That was 1916. But scroll forward 30 years to 1945, and another egregious figure, or perceived to be egregious figure by the large bulk of the British population at the time, William Joyce, otherwise known as Lord Haw Haw, and then certainly the most reviled man in Britain, as I say, when he was prosecuted for treason at the end of the war, just after the war had ended, he had the benefit of representation by a very venerable King's Counsel called Gerald Slade, along with two excellent juniors who each went on to become titans of the criminal bar. And Slade, notwithstanding the identity of his client, doggedly argued his client's case all the way up to the House of Lords, uh, and as some of you will remember, losing uh, uh, in, each, in each tier of the judiciary. And of course, uh, as we all remember, Joyce was hanged in early 1946. It's always seemed to me that Gerald Slade... This, the, the, the King's Council, who acted for Joyce, really epitomises the concept, and here I'm going to use a phrase which you might sound discordant with the, the subject of my lecture, of the apolitical barrister who fulfils precisely the ideal of the cab rank rule. And let's have a quick look at Gerald Slade. Marvellous, nice early 1940s, late 1930s photograph of Gerald Slade. The year before he acted for Joyce. This man, Slade, was instructed by the Imperial Hotel in Bloomsbury to defend a civil claim brought by the great Trinidadian and West Indian cricketer, Leary Constantine, who'd made a booking in 1944 at the, this hotel in order to play a cricket match uh, at Lord's. Um, and when he arrived, various American soldiers who were also billeted or staying at the hotel objected to a black person sharing a hotel with them. And he brought a claim, Constantine. Quite, I'm quite very glad he did, and quite rightly did. And I'm glad to say that Slade, although I'm sure he acted tenaciously on behalf of the Imperial Hotel of Bloomsbury in defending the claim, he lost the claim, I'm glad to say. And then we go a year on after he had acted for, for William Joyce in late 1945, we find the same man, Gerald Slade, being instructed by the then chairman of the Labour Party, the socialist and intellectual Harold Lasky, who brought an infamous libel action against a newspaper which alleged that during the 1945 election campaign, he had uh, uh, advocated in hustings and at various public meetings violent revolution. Uh, he lost that case as well, lost three cases. Um, but that what happened, sometimes happens at the bar, it's fair to say, as I know to my cost. Um, the year later, this man, Gerald Slade, was appointed a High Court judge to the Queen's Bench Division, and his preferment uh, as to become a High Court judge wasn't marred in any way by the fact that in the last two or three years before he was appointed to the judiciary, he'd accepted brief briefs for a racist hotel, a Nazi propagandist, or a left-wing revolutionary. 
And that seems to me to sum up some vital and quintessential aspect of the English bar. Uh, but before I move on, let's just give a, give a couple more uh, examples. Um, it's well known, of course, that uh, many barristers become members of parliament, perhaps more so in the past than the, present, than the present day. And one finds parliamentarians doing, often doing big criminal cases while parliamentarians, and many people say that's a very good thing. Um, but what has always amazed, has always, uh, I found rather remarkable and, and rather pleasing, is the way that you find Labour and Conservative MPs, while parliamentarians, acting for, again, some of the most reviled people in society. It's an extraordinary fact that Sir Ivan Lawrence, who was a pretty right-wing member of Parliament in the 70s and 80s, a great man, I should say, he accepted the brief to represent Dennis Nilsson, the notorious serial murderer in the early 80s, uh, and as portrayed in a recent ITV uh, series, um, famously done. Um, always struck me as marvellous that Ivan Lawrence, who's very upright Tory MP, should have never questioned but that he should take on that brief. And another uh, interesting fact, Peter Rawlinson, Conservative MP who subsequently became both Solicitor General and Attorney General, was junior counsel to Ruth Ellis in the 1950s. I, I referred to Gerald Slade as epitomising the concept of the apolitical barrister. You might ask, what relevance has such a man to a lecture about the political lawyer? Well, my answer is that, in fact, my first version of the political lawyer is a concept of a person who offers their services to whoever seeks them out without judging them and who irrespective of the identity of that client, will work tirelessly and fearlessly on their behalf. That, it seems to me, is in a sense a type of political barrister or political lawyer. It is a political position to adopt. It's a, a collective statement about the rule of law and the societal value attached to the ideal of unhindered access to justice. It's a statement, if you will, of the importance that we as a society ascribe to the right to everyone to get a fair hearing, whoever they may be. That, it may be said, is a political stance and a political ideal, and it's one which has been embraced in the United Nations basic principles of the role of lawyers, which states, and I quote, Lawyers shall not be identified with their clients or their clients' causes as a result of discharging their functions. And that societal value, as I put it, for a long time has commanded pretty much unanimous approval. And therefore, there was some disquiet in some quarters, and including in, amongst the Law Society and the Bar Council, when a few weeks ago, the Prime Minister, echoing earlier comments made by the Home Secretary, uh, asserted that his government was, and I quote, stopping, uh, or rather, that, that certain uh, uh, lefty lawyers, lefty human rights lawyers, is the, the precise quote, were hamstringing the criminal justice system and the government was stepping in to stop that happening. Now, 
a lot of people have commented on those uh, words, of course, um, and many lawyers have and many legal institutions and organisations have. And as far as they can see, those so-called lefty human rights lawyers were doing no more than representing their clients to the best of their ability, taking advantage of the legal avenues available to them and so fulfilling their professional obligations. Now, so that's my first version of the political lawyer. And as I say, it seems to me to be a, a version that is a, a, a societal ideal of the purpose of a lawyer and also the right of every human being who is charged with a crime to, or, or in any way involved in the law, to be guaranteed legal representation. My second version of the political lawyer is one uh, that I might call the lawmaker and the law shaper. There are, of course, a series of very well-known barristers and solicitors who've become uh, well-known well as campaigning lawyers, and many of them have become household names and will be well-known to most people listening to this lecture. Uh, John Mortimer, Helena Kennedy, let me have a nice photograph of Helena Kennedy, um, Michael Mansfield, Jeffrey Robertson, Edward Fitzgerald, Gareth Pierce, Ben Bernberg, to name just a few. And indeed, I think we can also add to that list um, Gresham College's own recently appointed Professor of Law, Leslie Thomas, who's done enormously great work in many fields. Um, but in what way, you might ask, can they be political in a more active sense while at the same time fulfilling, as they certainly do, each of those barristers and solicitors, their professional obligations? It's a pertinent question, it seems to me, because it might be objected that a lawyer doing their job cannot, by reference to some of the principles I identified earlier, be political. After all, a lawyer owes a, owes a primary duty to the court, which transcends their duty to their client. And that duty has multiple manifestations. They can't mislead the court. They can't suppress evidence. You can't take a knowingly bad point. You can't disrupt the court. Whatever the wider issues that may be in play in the case, the lawyer, classically in English ethical codes, is absolutely not permitted, as I've said before, to express his or her personal opinions. They can only make submissions. Uh, and yet, and yet, it seems to me and I suggest, there is room for a version of the political, even within the context of the eth ethical code to which every barrister or solicitor must adhere. There are different ways of doing cases. The common law is not a dead letter, but a living instrument. And it generally moves forward, the common law, not, not because a, a, a judge suddenly has a bright idea, but because inventive and committed lawyers build arguments, present evidence, create cases, sometimes to hostile tribunals, which change the perception of the judiciary, of the jury, and ultimately can change the law. And that process of presenting arguments, presenting evidence, can, over time, actually change not only the legal weather, but in a broader sense, the political weather. And it's in this sense that I think there's a real case 
for saying that lawyers can actually be responsible for changing not only the law, but as, I, as I've said, for judicial and jury attitudes. And I'm going to give three short examples. Uh, uh, there are many, many more. Traditionally, the law of provocation, as it used to be known, was understood as where a person suffered a sudden and temporary loss of self-control, rendering the accused, to use the old phrase, so subject to passion as to make him or her, for the moment, not master of his or her mind. Now, although the, 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 the formulation of the law was careful to include his or her, he or she, it's notorious that that formulation, as traditionally understood, favoured the traditional or the, the, the classic notion of the male sudden loss of control, as opposed to, to some extent, as attitudes that are associated more with the female psychology. And it undoubtedly had a role, that formulation, to prejudice women who were being prosecuted for murder. And that conception of the law of provocation, I don't want to give a lecture on the law of provocation, there are many better qualified people to do it than me, was only altered, not because judges suddenly came to new perceptions about human psychology, but because lawyers doggedly and tirelessly put before juries, put before courts of appeal, evidence to show the different ways that different types of people responded to what was traditionally previously known as provocation. And it had the effect of affecting a, a legal shift in the eyes of the judiciary and in the eyes of juries to make a great, much greater understanding of the way that typically women respond to typically male violence over time and male provocation over time. That was one, and it gave rise to some famous cases, and, uh, 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 which many people will, will remember. The second example is the law of obscenity. In the 1950s, juries habitually convicted writers and publishers for obscenity in relation to what today would be perceived to be entirely innocuous material. When the Obscene Publications Act of 1959 was enacted, the public view of obscenity didn't suddenly and miraculously alter overnight. Public perceptions changed and jury acquittals mounted because lawyers worked hard over the decades to develop arguments and place expert evidence before courts up and down the country to explain the moral values of literature and the political values and the legal and the literary values. And that had the effect over a period of time to shift public opinion as to the conception and limits of freedom of expression. And we all remember John Mortimer and Jeffrey Robertson who, who were at the vanguard of that, of, of that, not a campaign, but that almost movement. And I should say that Jeffrey Robertson's textbook on the law of obscenity, I think published as long ago as 1979, remains, from my point of view, one of the best and certainly the most entertaining legal textbook I have ever read and possibly the most influential legal textbook ever written. That's the second example. The third example, and I'll take this relatively quickly, is attitudes to police brutality and mendacity lying in the witness box. It's a well-known phenomenon that 
in the 1960s and 70s and earlier, uh, a policeman's or policewoman's word in the witness box was treated as gospel. The notion that a police officer could lie in a courtroom was an almost unthinkable proposition. And that shift from credulity to doubt and to accepting that it's it was possible for a police officer to lie only became possible, only matured into a, an understanding and a value as a result of committed lawyers, such as some of the names that I've mentioned earlier, presenting to courts of appeal evidence and arguments that gradually shifted perceptions about who tells lies and who does not in courtrooms. We are fortunate, I think, to live in a country where the rule of law is, broadly speaking, adhered to. But in other countries and at other times, the concept of the political lawyer carries with it different meanings to the ones that I have so far discussed. And here I come to my third version of the political lawyer, the one who's willing to break the rules towards a higher perceived goal, or a perceived higher goal. This third version of the political lawyer is somebody I might call the disruptor, the lawyer who seeks to use the trial process with, and sometimes without, their client's consent to continue some larger political project or purpose. Now, in this regard, English legal attitudes are, to some extent, different to those of other jurisdictions. One finds, finds examples, both in France and Germany, to take, exa to take two examples, um, in terrorist trials and sometimes, unfortunately, in Holocaust denial trials, uh, uh, that lawyers are sometimes aligned with the views of their clients and have no compunction at all about publicising that alignment, uh, a, a conception which is rather alien to the English lawyer, I should say. And the, the greatest example of this third type of political lawyer, the disruptor, as I call, it, as I call them, is the, the famous or, depending on your point of view, notorious Jacques Vergès. Now, Vergès was born of a Vietnamese mother and a French father. He made his name defending Algerian members of the FLN, Front Liberation Nationale, uh, who were active, of course, during the Algerian War of Independence. And apparently, during that process, developed a visceral hatred of French imperialism. One of his most high-profile clients was uh, a woman called Jamila Bouchered, convicted in the 1950s of the murder of 11 people in a cafe where she had left a bomb. And uh, uh, I understand that she later was portrayed semi-fictionally in Portogorvo's classic film, The Battle of Algiers. Uh, after her death sentence was commuted to a term of imprisonment, her lawyer, Jacques Vergès, married her. Now, the, the most extraordinary point of Vergès's career um, was probably his defence in Lyon in 1987 of the Gestapo officer Klaus Barbie, who'd been, as is very well known, had been in the city during the Second World War uh, as a senior member of the Gestapo, and was accused of crimes against humanity for his involvement in the torture of members of the French resistance and uh, uh, the, the, the notorious deportation of 40 French Jewish orphans 
who were living in a nearby orphanage to Auschwitz. Now, Vergès was a communist, and he headed a defence team on behalf of Barbès, um, a Barbie rather, which included a Congolese and an Algerian advocate, all united in defending an unrepentant Nazi. And there's a drawing of Vergès in the courtroom with his client leaning over to discuss some point with him. Uh, it was truly an odd coupling. Vergès' approach to the defence of Barbie is really almost incomprehensible to an English lawyer. It involves seeking to deny the French state's right to prosecute Barbie on the grounds of its own, that is the state's, own supposed moral turpitude in relation to its recent colonial history, which apparently made it, as a state, incompetent to put Barbie on trial. One might describe it as the hypocrisy defence. Uh, and one of Vergès's most remarkable submissions ran as follows, and I quote, Why, he said, are the German atrocities in France crimes which must never be forgotten, even 40 years on, while French atrocities in Algeria are subject to an amnesty after 20 years, as indeed they were under French law. He found that, Barbie, an incomprehensible contradiction, which somehow afforded Barbie a defence. Vergès sought to call as witnesses Algerian victims of French state torture. He also tried to argue that members of the resistance had been complicit in the capture of Barbie's most famous victim, the great Jean Moulin, as if that complicity on the part of other, alleged complicity on the part of other French resistance members, in some way had any bearing at all on Barbie's own culpability. Although Barbie was convicted and sentenced in France in 1988 to a life imprisonment, Vergès apparently said after the trial, on a political level, I have won. If that meant he'd succeeding in, succeeded in turning himself into the world's most recognisable lawyer, then I suppose he was right. Vergès was a truly remarkable figure. He went on to defend Illich Ramirez Sanchez, otherwise known as Carlos the Jackal, Tariq Aziz, you'll remember, some of you remember the, 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 the Deputy Prime Minister of Iraq, and he went on to also defend the Khmer Rouge's former head of state um, from the late 1970s on charges of genocide. Indeed, a celebrated documentary was made about him titled Terror's Advocate. Now, I suspect that Vergès's modus operandi would sit very uncomfortably indeed with most English lawyers, whoever they might be. N not, I emphasise, because of the identity of his clients, but because Vergès saw it as permissible to treat a trial not as a legal inquiry into guilt or the lack of it, but as a forum for the pursuit of propagandising and what he himself described as rupture, rupture. I sometimes think myself that the most important skill of any lawyer is when faced with a vast welter, as we, all, we are every day of the week, of undifferentiated fact, 
the ability, the great ability of the lawyer is to understand what is legally relevant and what is not, and to be able to cut through all the dross of irrelevant facts to get to the very essence of the case. I'm sure Vergès himself knew all about the concept of legal relevance, but he made a decision in case after case to uh, effectively rip up questions of relevance and use trials to promote his own political agenda um, and possibly, it might be said, to promote himself. Certainly, he, he was successful in doing that. Um, and one, I've given Vergès as, a, as an example and a very, very famous example, but one can find in European trials and elsewhere in the world other examples of lawyers who either associated themselves wholeheartedly with their clients. One take the Bader-Meinhof trials, for instance. One finds the lawyers acting for the Bader-Meinhof defendants were typically closely associated political uh, 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 friends and associates with, with, the, with the defendants. Um, that's my third version of the political lawyer. Um, I want to come on now to the fourth and final version, which I wish to describe, or I would describe as, the moral icon. Now, using the phrase moral icon in the same breath as a lawyer might excite a certain amount of derision from some quarters. But, as I hope I've demonstrated to some extent, lawyers can act uh, with intense bravery and with intense sacrifice. And the person I want to talk about in this regard, in this fourth regard, was a great South African barrister called Bram Fisher. He was a conundrum. He'd been born in 1908 into an established Afrikaner family. His grandfather had been the prime minister of the Orange River colony, and his father, a eminent and senior judge. But Fisher himself became a dedicated communist and committed anti-apartheid activist and lawyer. Throughout the 1940s and 50s, he maintained a dual existence, both in and out of court. On the one hand, he maintained a flourishing commercial law practice, becoming, at one point, the, apparently the, the most learned person in South Africa on mining law, while at the same time, he was also representing members of the ANC in criminal trials. He became chairman of the Johannesburg Bar, and universally respected as an advocate, and at the same time, he was leading a secret existence as the chairman of a rather different organization, the then-banned South African Communist Party. In the late 1950s, he led, a he led the defense in the celebrated treason trial, which ran for many years and was a, a, a mass prosecution of essentially all the senior figures of the ANC at the time, a trial which, remarkably, given that it was tried by three judges, no jury, uh, and those three judges were uh, appoint, had been appointed by the National Party government, ended in universal acquittals for his clients. But the case for which Fisher is best remembered is the so-called Rivonia trial, which, as many of you will remember, uh, was named after the suburb in Johannesburg in which Lillisley Farm, the hideout or headquarters of both the ANC's military wing 
spear of the, or paramilitary wing, spear of the nation, and the South African Communist Party was located, where in mid-1963 were arrested most of the defendants who would later go on trial in the so-called Rivonia trial. And as many of you will know, in that trial, the most famous of the defendants was none other than Nelson Mandela. But sitting beside him in the dock were Walter Sisulu, Ahmed Kathrada, Dennis Goldberg, and many other now legendary figures of the anti-apartheid movement. And they were all prosecuted for sabotage. And that, at the time, was a capital crime. And, of course, many of you will remember that that was the trial where Mandela gave his famous doc speech, um, in which, he, which is, was recorded and still available to listen to, where he proclaimed his willingness to die for his cause. And, of course, it was as a result of the sentence that was passed upon him in 1964 at the end of the Rivonia trial that... Mandela was incarcerated for many, many years, only to emerge in 1990 to change South Africa. Um, now, there's a photograph of Bram Fischer on the left with another great man called Vernon Beranger to the right, going into court during the Rivonia trial. For, for Fischer, this trial was a much more than a purely professional undertaking. The people he was defending were his close political associates. As the de facto head of the South African Communist Party, he'd actually been a regular visitor at Lillisley Farm, and uh, uh, was a matter of pure chance he wasn't present when the police raided it in July 63. And many of the documents which were found at Lillisley Farm were actually in his own handwriting. Um, so it was really very lucky, from his point of view, pure luck, that he wasn't actually a co-defendant with the other defendants in the case. Um, nonetheless, he agreed to defend and lead for the defence in that trial. Now, during the trial itself, various workers at the Linnesley Farm were called as prosecution witnesses to identify the various defendants as, yes, I saw accused number one, Nelson Mandela, at the farm on various occasions, etc., etc. Now, Fisher's own presence at the farm, not on the day of the arrests, but prior to that day, meant that he himself felt obliged to absent himself on the days when evidence was being given by farm workers for fear that as they scanned the courtroom, identifying the defendants as having been present, they'd see leading counsel in counsel's row and point at him and say, yes, and I saw that man as well. Um, there were other terrifying moments in the trial when the prosecutor, Dr. Percy Utah, notorious man, would stand up in court and look meaningfully at Fisher and say, and there's another document we found, my lord, which is in somebody's handwriting. We haven't quite yet worked out whose handwriting it was. Now, leading for the defence in a capital trial is stressful enough um, without living in permanent fear of being implicated in the alleged crimes you're actually defending. And yet, Fisher managed throughout the trial to conduct it through to the end with impeccable self-restraint and respect towards the, tr the, the court. No vergers was he. 
well known for his impeccable manners in court. He wasn't a proponent of the rupture technique of court advocacy, such as Vergès and some of the other people I mentioned earlier. Nonetheless, even though he was a man for whom legal relevance was an important proposition, I've mentioned legal relevance a little earlier, he still managed to turn the trial, while not in any way showing disrespect to the court and the judge, into a trial in which, which created a forum in which the defendants could speak to the world and explain and justify their actions. And those voices were, of course, heard in 1963 and 1964 across the world. And the Rivonia trial may perhaps be described now as the most famous political trial of the 20th century. Now, Fisher's achievement in saving Mandela from what many assumed would be an inevitable death sentence was certainly one of the crowning achievements of his professional life. Um, certainly, he had misgivings about attending the trial and, and acting in it as an advocate. But ultimately, he felt obliged to take the brief. At the time, there was nobody of his standing at the Johannesburg bar who could have stood up and presented that defence on behalf of the defendants, the array of very important defendants, and have a prospect with his moral authority, such as he certainly had, of saving those defendants from the gallows. And he, and he succeeded in saving them from the gallows, notwithstanding it was thought by many that inevitably they would be sentenced to death. I think another aspect of his, uh, of his importance as a choice of advocate was that he was, as I've said, himself an Africana, and therefore could speak as an Africana to an Africana judge and to an Africana government, uh, uh, in, one, in one sense. Um, after the trial ended in mid-1964, Fisher found himself, at, finally, found himself as a target of the state himself. He was arrested in September, two months after the trial ended, and charged himself with membership of a banned organisation under the Suppression of Communism Act, and also charged with a, an offence which seems remarkable to our 21st century eyes of, I quote, committing acts calculated to further the achievement of the objects of communism. There we are. It was a crime in 1964 in South Africa. Despite this, having been charged in September 64, Fisher was granted bail to allow him to go to London to argue a patent case before the Privy Council. Now, this is important to my story. Fisher, at, before the judge granting bail or not granting bail, Fisher gave a solemn assurance that he would return from London and stand, stand his trial in South Africa on the charges laid against him. And the judge granted Fisher bail, saying that he was a, quotes, a son of the soil. Of course, a reference to Fisher's Africana heritage. Um, and when Fisher went to London, he was indeed persuaded, or sought to be persuaded by many of his fellow communists, many of whom were in exile, to not return home on the basis that if you return home, you're returning home to certain conviction and professional humiliation. Nonetheless, he returned. And his own trial 
Bram Fischer's own trial commenced at the end of 1964. And here the story of his life gets even more complicated. He's now, remember, in the dock, not in counsel's row. Halfway through that trial, Fisher's own trial, he disappears. He leaves a letter to his counsel, uh, uh, who now found himself, of course, without a client, rather embarrassing position, explaining, and I quote, by the time this reaches you, writes Fisher, I shall be a long way from Johannesburg and shall absent myself from the remainder of the trial. I've not taken this step lightly. As you will no doubt understand, I have experienced great conflicts between my desire to stay with my fellow accused, there are a number of other defendants, and on the other hand, to try to continue the political work I believe to be essential. My decision was made only because I believe that it is the duty of every true opponent of this government to remain in this country and to oppose its monstrous policy of apartheid with every means in his power. That is what I shall do for as long as I can. And one can imagine Fisher's own counsel reading out that letter halfway through the trial to the judge with his client who knew where. Um, and needless to say, Bram Fisher was then convicted in absentia by the judge and sentenced to several years in prison. However, Bram Fischer, the leading advocate of the Johannesburg Bar, was now living underground. He was adopting disguises, he was living incognito, moving from safe house to safe house, seeking to revive the South African Communist Party, which had been shattered by multiple arrests and prosecutions. A vast manhunt was carried out by the South African security authorities. Extraordinarily, Fisher, for many months, evaded capture. Now, while Fisher was living underground, the Johannesburg Bar Council, the very council he had been chair of a few years earlier, commenced disciplinary proceedings against him, its former chairman, as I say, seeking to have him struck off. It was alleged against him that in failing to attend his own trial, Fisher had breached the conditions of his bail and the undertaking he'd given to the court, which constituted, so it was said, conduct unbefitting that of an advocate. One can imagine this step came as an enormous blow to Bram Fisher, uh, who'd spent 30 years as a senior advocate at the Johannesburg Bar. And at those disciplinary proceedings, Fisher was defended by his friend and colleague, Sidney Kentridge, who had, of course, later to become a great advocate in London uh, uh, and moved to London and gradually changed his practice to London in the 70s and 80s. Um, but at the time, firmly ensconced at the Johannesburg Bar. Uh, uh, and can you imagine what it was like for Sidney Kentridge to defend his friend and colleague from a charge of... Uh, conduct unbefitting an advocate, where he couldn't take instructions from his client because his client was missing, was living incognito. Now, the, the argument that Kentridge proposed to the judges was founded on the principle that, which had been recognised, I should say, by previous South African court decisions, that political offences committed because of a belief in the overriding moral validity of a political principle, do not themselves justify the disbarring of a person from practicing the profession of the law. It was said by Kentridge 
that Fisher's conduct did not have any bearing on his profession as an advocate. It didn't impinge on the quality or integrity required of an advocate to carry out that role. And there's a very moving letter that Fisher wrote, which Sidney Kentridge presented to the court. And I quote, Where an advocate does what I have done, his conduct is not determined by any disrespect for the law, nor because he hopes to benefit personally by any offence he may commit. On the contrary, it requires an act of will to overcome his deeply rooted respect of legality, and he takes the step only when he feels that whatever the consequences to himself, his political conscience no longer permits him to do otherwise. He does not do it because of a desire to be immoral, but because to act otherwise would, for him, be immoral. Now, I suspect it'll come as little surprise to you to hear that the court was not persuaded by that argument. The judge sitting on the disbarment proceeding was none other than the same judge who Fisher had advocated to uh, at the Rivonia trial just a year or so earlier, Judge President DeWitt. And in his judgment, in DeWitt's judgment, he said this, the respondent, that is Bram Fisher, in effect admits that his political views are such that it is not, he is not prepared to conform to the laws of his country. It's the duty of the court to uphold and enforce the laws of the country duly enacted and promulgated. It would be inconsistent with that duty of the court to allow an advocate to remain on the roll when he is defying these laws and instigating others to defy those laws. So Bram Fisher's name was erased from the role of advocates. And there lay the conundrum. The laws of South Africa at that time, in the mid-1960s, and indeed for many years to come, were an abomination. Yet they were properly enacted in the sense that a duly elected government had brought them into legality, albeit, of course, that that government was elected on the basis of an entirely perverse suffrage, confined only to the minority white population. Fisher refused to accept the legality of such laws. But, said Judge DeWitt, who found the case a painful one, I'm sure, the courts themselves had to abide by them and apply them, and took the view that so did the lawyers who appeared in front of them and practiced the law at the time. The story doesn't even end there. A few weeks after this judgment, Fisher was discovered after 11 months on the run, tried for yet further offences, now carrying a sentence of death. Sidney Kentridge again defends him at the criminal trial, the second criminal trial, though the sentence and the outcome and the conviction was a foregone conclusion. Fisher was convicted, sentenced to life in prison. And one of Sidney Kentridge's most abiding memories, as he's told me, is the shock of hearing the prosecutor standing up at the end of, Kent, of Fisher's final trial and asking the judge to sentence the former chairman of the Johannesburg Bar to death, a, a request that even the judge shivered at and found almost gave the impression he was horrified by that a fellow barrister could have invited him to pass sentence of death on Fisher. 
As it was, Fisher was sentenced to life in prison and died nine years later uh, while still a prisoner. Um, you'll remember that when he was in London, Fisher had been subject to a friend saying, don't go back, don't go back, stay. You'll only go back to professional disgrace and prison. His response was, and I paraphrase, F my career. He was willing to suffer the, not only the disgrace of, well, not a disgrace, but the pain of imprisonment, but the, also the professional con the consequences of disbarment. And whether you're an English lawyer or a South African lawyer or any other nationality of lawyer, one thing is certain, your reputation and standing amongst your peers are the greatest treasure you possess. And Fisher's decision to sacrifice that was, to my mind, the supreme sacrifice and perhaps the greatest political act one can ask of any lawyer. It's fair to say that in death, Fisher's rehabilitation has been complete and he's now rightly venerated as the, one of the most iconic lawyers of the 20th century, um, the subject of books, films and lectures and there is an annual Bram Fisher lecture. And when the first Bram Fisher lecture was given by none other than President Mandela in 1995 and he recalled an extraordinary sentence that Bram Fisher had given when, after he'd been arrested for the final time, he was asked by somebody, Brahm, what made you sacrifice your family and legal practice for, for this? What made you allow yourself to put yourself in a position to be hunted as an outlaw and to suffer what is now going to be a harsh punishment? Was it worth it? Somebody asked Brahm Fisher. He responded, and this is Mandela's, I'm quoting from Mandela's speech, to the person who asked him, did you ask Mandela or Sisulu or Mbeki or Kathrada or any others that have already suffered this punishment, did you ask them that question? If you didn't ask them that question, why did you ask me? Extraordinary, extraordinary remark. Um, and yet it's fair to say that the question of whether the court had acted properly in disbarring Bram Fisher was even at the time a hotly contested one. And I've spoken to some South African lawyers with impeccable liberal credentials who have said, as far as they can see, the judge, the judges sitting on his disbarment could have done nothing different to what they did. Um, sometimes it's fair to say morality and legality come into insoluble conflict. Um, to lead, to come to a conclusion, the, the court is a place which necessarily breeds conflict and contention. But the question of the extent to which the courtroom is a proper place to do politics is a vexed one. As I hope I've shown, professional obligation can come into conflict with political conviction. But more importantly, simple fulfilment of professional obligation can itself carry consequences. Today, around the world, lawyers are attacked simply for carrying out their duties. In states in a number of 
East European countries. We see systematic attacks on judicial and legal independence and lawyer independence. To take two examples, in Azerbaijan, lawyers active in human rights cases are threatened with a disbarment, and so the destruction of their right to practice and their livelihood is the ultimate sanction. If you, I'll take away your right to practice, I'll disbar you and to, 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 to get at a lawyer who's possibly proving to be a thorn in the side of the authorities. Turkey. In September of this year, President Erdogan gave a speech in which he warned that lawyers deemed to have links with terrorist organizations could be dismissed from the profession and declared, we will do what is necessary to cut off we will do what is necessary to cut off the bloody path from attorneyship, the business of being a lawyer, to terrorism. And sure enough, two weeks after those words were spoken, lawyers representing clients charged with terrorism offences found themselves taken into custody for, quotes, assisting a terrorist organisation. I started this lecture with four examples of the price for lawyers from different countries from different eras, paid for representing a particular client. None of them related to the England of the 21st century. I express the view that it is a rarity for, England, for lawyers in England to suffer opprobrium on account of the identity of the clients they represented. Yet, just last week, one, it was reported that four days after the Home Secretary's remarks about so-called lefty human rights lawyers, a man entered the offices of a firm of immigration lawyers bearing a knife, carrying a Confederate flag and far-right literature. And one person was injured by that man in that law firm. Other law firms have reported threats and abuse in the last few weeks. It is clear that words can have consequences. Um, thank you very much for listening. Almost on time. Perfect. And what a dazzling start to your visiting professorship. Um, it was an, a, a tremendous lecture and reflected in a huge number of questions, and we're, we're not going to get through oh, them gosh. all. Um, but I'm going to start with um, two questions um, about lefty lawyers. Um, and I'm just going to ask you them together. The first one is, is what do you think of Priti Patel's reference to lefty lawyers? And has the perception of lefty lawyers provoked curbs on judicial review? And linked to that um, is a second one, um, which says, um, I wonder whether the Johnson Patel critique of lefty lawyers is really a critique of aspects of, of public law notably judicial review and human rights law, which allows lawyers to bring cases against the government. If so, is this underlying critique well-founded? Well, I, uh, they're very good questions, if I may say so. But the, the, the real, seems to me that, that the Home Secretary's real complaint is not about lawyers in reality, although she's personalised it to be about lawyers. It's about the law that they practise. Now... Lawyers are on a bound to take 
points properly available to them on behalf of their clients. If they didn't do so, they would be failing to fulfill their obligations and acting in breach of their obligations. Now, if the law as it stands contains provisions which allow points to be taken, which annoy the government, and no doubt they do annoy the government because no doubt there is at least some understand, one can vaguely understand that immigration cases lead to an enormous amount of of time and effort and costs, but those, the reasons they, those points can be taken is because the law allows them to be taken. The, the remedy lies, and I'm not suggesting I'm advocating this at all, the remedy lies in changing the law, not blaming the lawyers, and that appears to me to be, well, one of the fundamental errors of Priti Patel's analysis, and of course, criticising lawyers per se is, a, is in my view, a a bad thing for all sorts of reasons. But it's just, a, just missing the point. All the lawyers are doing is fulfilling their obligations by taking, taking the, the points that, that are available to them. As regards judicial review, I think there was a question on judicial review. I mean, there's a, at the moment, there is an ongoing uh, uh, review of judicial review, and, there's a, and Lord Fawkes is, is um, uh, uh, chairing, chairing that review, and, and if one, as many people have done, studied carefully the Conservative manifesto from last year, one will see in there certain suggestions that they, the view of the Conservative government is that judicial review has too wide an, a, 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 an expanse and purview and is being misused by lawyers, i.e. they're just doing what they can with their, the tools that are available to them, and misused by judges, and of course the critique has extended to judges as well in the past, and we, we all know the terrible phrase, enemies of the people, but it went on from there, and there were various suggestions made by various politicians that, oh, well, perhaps we need to rein in the powers of the Supreme Court, and of course the Supreme Court annoyed, no doubt annoyed certain figures, or certain figures in authority in its two Miller decisions, and it's fair to say other, other decisions, and... Um, I think it's right to say that, that there is a move afoot and there is a wind blowing in Whitehall which is tending towards uh, uh, potential changes in the law to A, reduce the ambit of judicial review and B, even to um, reduce somehow in some amorphous way the powers of the Supreme Court who are seen to be a campaigning court. I would suggest, having read many decisions of the Supreme Court over the last 10 years, that all the Supreme Court are doing is applying the law as they find it in a, in a um, conscientious way. So the next question um, uh, is another very topical one. Um, uh, and this is uh, the International Market Bill apparently breaks international law. What action can or maybe should the British legal profession take? <laughs> well, the, 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 the British legal profession have taken, uh, and they've, they've protested very heavily against it, and they have, sub at, a, at a recent bar council meeting, subjected to Suella Bravman, Queen's Council, the Attorney General, um, who, who was uh, asked about this, and uh, many people thought did not give an entirely convincing answer. Um, just on Friday, I think, the House of Lords Constitution Committee delivered a very long and detailed critique of the Internal Market Bill. Um, Lord Panic was one of the members of that, of that committee, um, which is, I mean, it's a, 
a very, very impressive and devastating analysis of, of the implications of that, of that, of that bill. What, what lawyers can do otherwise, I mean, I, I, I'm not entirely sure what they can do other than voice their dissatisfaction. And, well, they can resign in one sense. They can resign. And what did Lord Keane uh, in Scotland, Suella Braverman's analogue in Scotland, what did he do? He resigned. What did Jonathan Jones, Queen's Counsel, do in, in the civil service? He resigned. And the point has been put to Robert Buckland, the Lord Chancellor. Well, what are you going to do? Can you, given the oath you've, you've made to uphold the law, can you properly continue knowing that this legislation is going to be passed? And he's given, I think it's fair to say, a, a, a relatively equivocal uh, uh, answer for the time being. I mean, to be fair, Geoffrey Cox, who's the former Attorney General, who, who um, gave advice to the government in respect to the prorogation uh, question, um, he himself has come out pretty forcefully against the Internal Market Bill. There are very powerful voices who are making their, themselves heard, and I think quite what's going to happen, who knows, but I suspect they have been heard very loud and clear, and I suspect the government is feeling possibly more chastened than it was a, a month ago. We're never going to get through all these questions. I'm going to ask you one, one final question, which I think is a very interesting one, um, which is this. Is it right to label those who act just for defendants or largely in actions against the government as campaigning, yet those who largely act for the state are just lawyers? Surely the defense of the status quo or whatever the government deems is the right, uh, or whatever the government deems is right, is a campaign or at least an ideological position. Um, that, may, that, that may be right. I'm not sure how to answer that question. The, um, I suppose if one's looking at it in purely in the, in the criminal sphere, um, inevitably it will be more the, de the, the defence which is seeking to shift public opinion and to move public opinion on and move judicial opinion and jury opinion and the law and it may not be proper or right for a prosecutor to seek to alter the law. The prosecutor is there to, to fulfil an important role which does not involve trying to move the law on but simply to present it dispassionately to to, 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 the, to the judge. So I think without in any way, I mean, prosecutors are as important as defenders in, in um, and there are many very, very um, conscientious prosecutors in the world. But I think in terms of the ability to shift the law and move the law on and shift opinions, it is typically the sphere of the defender rather than the prosecutor, not, not for any moral lacking on the part of the prosecutor. Typically, the prosecutor will be the defender next week and the prosecutor the week after. I mean, that's one of the glories of the English system, that, that most, most members of the criminal bar will do prosecute and defend. They won't have a, necessarily a, a defence mindset. Some do, and there's no harm in that. But a lot of many defence barristers I've met say that they feel that their own ability to defend their clients is enhanced by their experience as a prosecutor. And there's no political, I mean, I, certainly from my point of view, I don't think there's, any, there's, no, there's nothing politically 
kind of um, egregious or morally bankrupt about prosecuting cases. Quite, quite the reverse. Thank you very much, and thank you again, uh, Professor Grant, for an excellent inaugural lecture. Thanks, Simon. Perhaps you could just tell everybody when your next lecture is and what its title well, is. Well, if there are anyone still listening, and I may be open to doubt whether there are, or there is, thank you if you are, um, I am speaking on uh, the 11th of January 2021 on the political jury. <laughs>